still hiding from Saul, David comes face to face with obstinate Nabal as he seeks provisions for his army. This is the 52nd sermon in the series Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from 1 Samuel in chapter 25, the first 31 verses, the first 31 verses, 1 through 31, by inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And Samuel died. And all the Israelites were gathered together and lamented him and buried him in his house at Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose possessions were in Carmel. And the man was very great. And he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife Abigail. She was a woman of good understanding and of a beautiful countenance. But the man was churlish and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. And David heard in the wilderness that Nabal did shear his sheep. And David sent out ten young men. And David said unto the young men, Get you up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus shall you say to him that liveth in prosperity, Peace be both to thee, and peace be to thine house, and peace be unto all that thou hast. And now I have heard that thou hast shearers. Now thy shepherds, which were with us, we hurt them not, neither was there aught missing unto them. All the while they were in Carmel. Ask thy young men, and they will show thee. Wherefore, let the young men find favor in thine eyes, for we come in a good day. Give, I pray thee, whatsoever cometh to thine hand, unto thy servants, and to thy son David." And when David's young men came, they spake to Nabal, according to all those words in the name of David, and ceased. And Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my flesh that I have killed for my shearers and give it unto men whom I know not whence they be? So David's young men turned their way and went again and came and told him all those sayings. And David said unto his men, Gird ye on every man his sword. And they girded on every man his sword. And David also girded on his sword. They went up after David about 400 men and 200 abode by the stuff. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to salute our master, and he railed on them. But the men were very good unto us, And we were not hurt, neither missing we anything, as long as we were conversant with them when we were in the fields. They were a wall unto us, both by night and day, all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore, know and consider what thou wilt do, for evil is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a son of Belial that a man cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two bottles of wine and five sheep ready dressed and five measures of parched corn and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on an ass. And she said unto her servant, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she told not her husband Nabal. And it was so as she rode on the ass that she came down by the covert of the hill and behold, David and his men came down against her and she met them. 
Now David had said, Surely in vain have I kept all that this fellow hath in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that pertaineth unto him, and he hath required me evil for good. And more also, do God unto the enemies of David, if I leave of all that pertain to him by the morning light, any that pisseth against the wall. When Abigail saw David, she hasted and lighted off the ass and fell before David on her face and bowed herself to the ground and fell at his feet and said, Upon me, my Lord, upon me, let this iniquity be. And let thine handmaiden, I pray thee, speak in thine audience and hear the words of thine handmaid. Let not my Lord, I pray thee, regard this man of Belial, even Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, thine handmaid, saw not the young men of my Lord, whom thou didst send. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, seeing the Lord hath withholden thee from coming to shed blood, and from avenging thyself with thine own hand, now let thine enemies, and they that seek evil to my Lord, be as Nabal. And now this blessing which thine handmaid had brought unto my Lord, let it even be given unto the young men that follow my Lord. I pray thee, forgive the trespass of thine handmaid, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord fighteth the battles of the Lord, and evil hath not been found in thee all thy days. Yet a man is risen to pursue thee, and to seek thy soul, But the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God, and the souls of thine enemies, them shall he sling out as out of the middle of a sling. And it shall come to pass, when the Lord shall have done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning thee, and shall have appointed thee ruler over Israel, that this shall be no grief unto thee, nor offense of heart unto my Lord, either that thou hast shed blood causeless, or that my Lord hath avenged himself. But when the Lord shall have dealt well with my Lord, then remember thine handmaid. Paul writing to the church at Colossae, Colossians in chapter 1, beginning in verse 3 through verse 5. By inspiration of God, Paul says this, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever and by his holy word is the gospel once again presented unto us again this day in this incredible narrative between David Nebal and Abigail. Now the historical account of David's interaction with Nebal and Abigail begins with the death of Samuel. We read this in in verse 1. Beginning with, And Samuel died a very tragic event, and Samuel died, and all the Israelites were gathered together and lamented him. They buried him in his house at Ramah. And of course, David hearing this, he arises and he goes down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, Adam Clark comments here, he says, Samuel lived, as is supposed, about 98 years He was in the government of Israel before Saul from 16 to 20 years old and ceased to live, according to the Jews, about four months before the death of Saul. 
but to the exact time between Samuel's death and the death of Saul is uncertain. So we have an old man here, 98 years or so old, living during the time of Saul, dying not too long before Saul's death. Samuel's death, however, is again mentioned in a very particular way in chapter 28, verse 3, almost in the same way as Joshua's death is mentioned twice in Judges chapter 1 and Judges chapter 2. And I believe that the reason for mentioning Samuel's death in the same way as Joshua's death was mentioned is to make perfectly clear that at this juncture, when Samuel dies, at the juncture when Joshua died, but at this point where Samuel dies... There's an end of an era. And this is why it's so important to recognize that chapter 25 opens with this incredible statement, and Samuel died. Signifying there's a transference, a difference of power, a transference of power, a transference of era from one era to another. The death of Samuel signals an end of one reign and the beginning of another. We have a shift, therefore, from the reign of the judges, which Samuel, of course, was the final judge, the last judge, to the reign of the kings. And so we begin in verse 1 with the words, and Samuel died, signifying now there's a shift, a real shift, from the time of the judges to the time of the kings. The Reverend Long adds this, he says, The prophet's death signals the end of the period of the judges and raises the question of how will things go now that Samuel is off the scene? Remember, he was the anchor at this point. But now that he's gone, what will be the testimony of Israel? Saul had already shown himself, even while Samuel was alive, how he would go against everything that Samuel had warned about. And so maybe another question is, well, now that Samuel is gone, how will David behave after his mentor, who is, of course, Samuel, has died? Now, by this time, as we've already understood, Samuel being dead, Saul now without any restrictions whatsoever, already was unhinged. How much more now would he completely be unhinged? And of course, that's what happens when the testimony of the righteous, when the testimony of the church of Jesus Christ dies, being removed from the scene, being removed from regulating and restraining the wicked. You see, this is why it's so important for the church to have a witness in the community. Because once the witness of the church is removed from the state, the state becomes also unhinged. So at the passing of Samuel, Interestingly enough, you would wonder, at the passing of Samuel, the entire nation of Israel mourns. And I find that very interesting due to the fact that they initially didn't want to hear what Samuel had to say. Isn't that the case? They didn't want to hear what Samuel had to say. Oh, we want a king like the other nations. They don't want to hear what Samuel had to say. Initially, they wanted nothing to do with what Samuel had to say. They wanted nothing to do with Samuel's counsel concerning the appointment of a king patterned after the pagans to fight the Philistines. But now, after seeing the unhinged, after witnessing the ravages of Saul, even destroying the testimony of the priesthood by killing the priests, now seeing that their prophet was dead, perhaps the only restraining power against, if there was any restraining power against Saul at this point, Now Saul was completely unhinged and perhaps knowing at this point, Israel knowing at this point that Samuel had been correct in his assessment 
of what Saul would bring. And now they mourn. Sadly, too little, too late. In America, in our most recent history, the people sought for a president, or so it seems, who would unleash a King Saul onto the American culture. But like Saul, this wicked man would systematically unravel the entire American way of life, seeking only to satisfy his evil agenda by eviscerating liberty in his attempt to silence the truth. And so when wicked men rule without the restraint of the gospel of Christ, the people mourn. Perhaps they were mourning not so much over Samuel's death, but the fact that there was no more restriction against Saul. But by this time, the damage had already been done. And Saul was now free to do whatever he wanted to do to terrorize the entire nation as a result of Israel's stubbornness and lust for a king like the other nations. So now Samuel's dead. And all of Israel mourns. Now perhaps one might ask, where was David in all this time? This is, this is David's mentor. Did David, was David able to attend the burial? That would be, that would be right. It would be right for him to do that, but if he did, he took a great risk since Saul may have anticipated that he would pay his last respects and use that opportunity to capture him despite his seeming repentance. Remember, it seemed as if he was repentant last time, but David didn't trust him. Now, if David did, however, attend the burial, we don't see any indication that Saul was there to capture David. If that was the case, then perhaps Saul really did mean what he said after David was humbling him because of that scene in the cave. But the final possibility, even the probability, is, which seems most likely, that David did not and was not able because he still didn't trust Saul to attend the burial, but rather went straightway from the cave into the wilderness of Paran. And that would be the wisest move for David. Because of Saul, he was unable to pay his last respects to his most beloved mentor. So this seems to be the likely scenario. And so David hides and for a season resides in another wilderness to separate himself from Saul. Now once there, he meets Nebal. Nebal, a wealthy man of Maon and his beautiful godly wife Abigail. We see this in verse 2 and 3. And there was a man in Maon whose possessions were in Carmel and the man was very great. Notice, he was majestic. He had great wealth. 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. He had servants and slaves at this point shearing his sheep. And his name was Nebal and the name of his wife, Abigail. It gives us a little insight as to Abigail, very different from her husband. She was a woman of good understanding as opposed to the man who was of evil understanding and of a beautiful countenance. She was something to look upon. Now the name Nabal, as we read in the scripture and as we understand, signifies a man whose name means to be foolish, base, or brutish. We are told that he's from the house of Caleb. The name Caleb is also significant, as it too implies someone who is rough or forceful. Whether in a negative way or a positive way, just someone who is forceful. But Nabal, not being rough or forceful or steadfast or resolute or tenacious in a good way, he was rather rough and forceful and tenacious in an evil way. He was an evil man. And I would assume being so wealthy as he was, he was a proud man because wealth does tend to make people proud. 
especially since he was a man of great wealth with all of these goats and all of these sheep. He perhaps had much power too in his realm as a result of his wealth and perhaps as a result of his social standing because of his wealth. In fact, he was a man much like Saul in character. A brutish man, an evil man. Nabal was from a city, Maon, which is where Saul had erected a monument for himself. It would just be like these wicked tyrants. I want a statue of myself like Stalin or Hitler or someone like that. Erecting statues in commemoration of themselves. Saul had erected one for himself in that very city where Nabal resided. This may indicate that Nabal allowed that to be done and perhaps even was a follower of Saul, or at least agreed with his policies, and like evil men, confederating with evil men, subscribed to his tyranny. Like so many in our, in our own nation who subscribe to the tyrannical power of the state, who are much like Nabal, foolish, brutish, and evil. So Nabal seems to be a surrogate Saul. And if that's the case we also may see Nabal as also a type of Adam, or at least a type of natural man, who as a result of the fall has become foolish, brutish, and evil. Nabal's wife, on the other hand, was a complete opposite. While he was cruel, evil, brutish, she was beautiful, and a woman of understanding. She had wisdom. But now the question is, and perhaps you're asking the question, I would ask the question, When I was in high school, we were asking the question, why do all the ugly guys get the beautiful girls? Why in the world would Abigail marry such a jerk? Why would this man, a brutish, evil man, why would he be married to such a beautiful woman? Well, the union might have been the result of Abigail's father's desire to gain a substantial portion of wealth, for his daughter and maybe himself. And that would require a suitor to be a man of wealth and power, social status. And at that time, the women didn't have much to say about who they would marry. That was really up to the father. Abigail may not have anything to have been saying about this. Maybe she had nothing to say about this. Which seems to be the case. Consider, however, the spiritual significance of the union between evil Nabal and righteous Abigail. And remember, we have before us a historical narrative, a real happening. The gospel is always hidden in one regard or another, in some way, shape, or form. Sometimes we can flesh it out. Sometimes we see the shadows. Sometimes we see it clearly. But we know it's there. And we should be mindful of that. Knowing that David is a great type of Christ knowing that Saul is a type of Adam, knowing that Nabal is a surrogate Saul, another type of Adam, and and Abigail, obviously a type of something. So the spiritual significance is quite intriguing. Because at the fall, all of God's elect was yoked to their Adamic nature and had nothing to say about it. We had nothing to say at the fall as far as our Adamic nature is concerned. So we were pretty much married to our Adamic nature without our consent. God's elect saints 
were married to that fallen state of Adam in the same way as they were married to the law, which knows no mercy, only brute force, like Nabal. So in typological fashion, Nabal's marriage to Abigail could, it could, represent the marriage of the elect to the law of God, which knows no mercy, and their unregenerate nature, which knows no mercy, until David, signifying Christ, delivers them as he delivers Abigail and makes her his wife. The prudent Abigail, I believe, represents the bride of Christ. Now from the text, we learn that the 10,000 sheep that Nabal had in possession were within the territory that David's men occupied. David and his men were living in this territory that Nabal had his sheep and his goats, and they had been among the shepherds and were talking with them and were friendly with them during their exile. Yet they did not steal, they did not molest any of Nabal's shepherds, nor take any of Nabal's sheep for themselves. Actually, what they did was they provided security so that no one else would plunder Nabal's fields. In other words, they acted as Nabal's security team against any that sought to plunder his wealth. So David's men were as David was. They were very honorable. They refused to plunder another man's possessions. And this is the intent of verse 7. Now thy shepherds which were with us, we hurt them not, neither was there aught missing unto them all the while they were in Carmel. Needing some provisions, however, because he did have to feed his men seeing that they did, at this point, provide a service to Nabal, they send messengers to Nabal to ask for some support. And David sent out ten young men, and David said unto the young men, Get you up to Carmel, go to Nabal, greet him in my name, and thus shall ye say to him that liveth in prosperity. Notice, he begins here, Peace be both to thee, and peace be to thine house, and peace be to all that thou hast. And then he asks, Will you, Will you provide for us because we have not plundered your sheep, we have not hurt your men, nothing was missing, please can you provide some sort of provision for us while we're here. Hearing this, which was fair, a fair request, we gave you security, feed us, we'll continue securing your sheep. But hearing this, Nabal returns David's request according to his character. Brutish, harsh, and evil. Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. Notice what he's saying. You left Saul, your master, who is my friend. So note the indictment. Who do you think you are? Who is David? Big deal, David. Who do you think you are? Who is this son of a poverty-stricken man, Jesse? In other words, you come from poor stock. Your family's not worth the time of day. I am the follower of Saul. I am the follower of royalty. I have wealth. I have social status myself. I should be considered above you. Who do you think you are? And so, with this indictment, Nabal disrespects David as well as his family name and insults him. Nabal then indicts David for desertion, placing him in the same category as many other rebels. Notice, 
there'll be many servants nowadays that break away even from their master. So you're no different from anybody else in rebellion. Now citing these, Nabal turns for a moment and flatly refuses the future king. Notice verse 11. Shall I then, in light of who you are and what you've done and how I think of you, shall I then take my bread and my water and my flesh that I have killed from my shearers and give it unto men whom I know not whence they be? I don't know these people. I'm not going to be kind to strangers who have even provided me a security. That was his response. Why should I give anything to you or your men? Now, if we see the situation in light of the Lord Jesus, his providential protection over the possessions of wealthy men, wicked men, and their refusal to give back to the Lord that which he asks, we have a valuable lesson. Consider, not only has the Lord Jesus Christ in his providential sovereign protection protected the possessions of all men, the wicked as well as the just, He has providentially given everything to the wicked and protected their provisions. Just think about that. Think about the wicked of this world, the wealthy Nabals of this world. Has God not granted them that wealth? Does Nabal say, I have gotten this of myself? Or is this not the blessing of God? So even today, with all of the wealth of the world, with all of the politicians of power, are they giving recognition to the God of glory for what God has given them and protected them with. So consider, God has protected even the wicked in the same way that David asked to be blessed. Give me back just a portion. In the same way that David asks to be blessed by the wherewithal that Nabal has, so too does the Lord Jesus Christ not only ask, but commands, it's part of the law, demands the wicked to give him back his due. Bow to me as Lord and Savior. But as Nabal, they refuse. And the wicked and the wealthy of the world ask the same questions. Who is this Jesus that I should bow to him? Who is this Jesus that I should give back to him? Or to bow and to worship before him? Or to bring thanksgiving before him? Who is this Jesus, the son of a poor mother and father, that could only bring two turtle doves at his circumcision? Not even a goat, not even a lamb that I should give to him? Who is this Jesus? And yet Nabal owed everything to David. Otherwise, his provisions would have been molested and burned and sacked and stolen. So the question, I guess, is this. Do the wicked owe anything to God? And the answer is an astounding absolutely yes. They owe everything to God. Even the breath that they have to animate their wretched mortal bodies is from God himself. And the minute he removes his hand of restraint, his hand... Away from those wicked, they will die and become dust. The Apostle Paul tells the pagans, those wicked pagans on Mars Hills as much. He says in Acts chapter 17, verse 24 and 5, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temple made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Would we not then bow before him and give him thanks? Thanks. 
and not be like that man that says, my hand and my arm hath gotten me this power, this wealth. God also gives rain to the wicked for their survival. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh the Son, his Son, to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. And yet, they were neither thankful, nor did they worship the Lord for those provisions, like Nebal. Now, even though the wicked are planted in the earth, God does allow them to grow up before he plucks them up and throws them into the fire of his wrath. So even there, he's merciful. You know, tomorrow, God could say, you know, all those wicked people, I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth, but he doesn't. He protects them. He allows them to pursue their lusts, to gain wealth and notoriety. Notice, Matthew 13, 25 and following, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then it hath tares. He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. So even there we find the mercy of God on the wicked. Note how David begins his request to Nabal with a blessing of peace. Peace be unto you. Peace be to thee. Peace be unto thine house. Peace be unto all that thou hast. Now while David is calling for peace, in the same way that the Lord Jesus Christ calls for peace, Nabal is calling for war. In the same way that the wicked call for war when Jesus calls for peace, and war they will have. David is following the law of war, as was commanded in Deuteronomy 20, which shows his understanding of how to apply the law of God to every situation, even this one with Nabal. Because before you take, or before you declare war, you anticipate nothing evil, you think not evil, you say peace be unto you and all your house, and then you give your request. But Nabal wanted nothing like that, he wanted war, just like the people of the world that are outside of Christ, all they want is war with Christ. Hearing this insult, David prepares for war. Taking 400 men to meet Nabal and the remaining 200 to stay with their supplies, David begins his response to Nabal's insults. David said unto his men, Gird ye on every man his sword, and they girded on every man his sword. And David also girded on his sword, and there went up after David about 400 men and 200 abode by the stuff. Now as God would have it, a young man hears of David's plan. And he runs to tell Abigail what was about to befall her husband's entire household. David was ready with wrath. He was going to decimate everything. And it is here where we learn of David's protection over Nabal's sheep in verse 14, 15, and 16. Notice, he didn't molest the sheep. They were very good to the shepherds. 
They didn't miss anything. They discussed things with them. And notice verse 16. And David's men were a wall unto them by night and day. A protective wall by night and day all the while that they were keeping the sheep. David was going to respond to Nabal's insult with violence. And it seems that even this young man knew that Nabal deserved David's response because he was such a wicked man. We see this in verse 17. Now therefore know and consider what thou wilt do for evil is determined against our master. In other words, calamity, destruction, that word evil, destruction is determined against our master and against all of his household for he is such of a belial. Notice the man even knew The servant even knew he is the son of a Belial, a wicked, devilish man that cannot, and that a man can't even speak to him without getting his head bit off. All because of pride. But now we have Abigail. Now we have Abigail to the rescue. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two bottles of wine and five sheep ready dressed and five measures of parched wheat. The corn here is really the word kernel or wheat. And 200 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on asses. And she said unto her servants, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she told not her husband Nabal. And it was so. As she rode on the ass that she came down by the covert of the hill. And behold, David and his men came down against her and she met them. And note the offerings that she brings. In some way, we know that these relate to some effort of peace. It was, it was a treaty, a peace offering. But they're also a symbol of the gospel, the gospel of mercy, the atoning power of Christ. Notice, 200 loaves of bread, the bread of life, two bottles of wine, five sheep as a sacrifice, five measures of parched wheat, 100 clusters of dried grapes, raisins, and 200 cakes of figs. All these she packed onto a donkey in the same way that Jesus rode on a donkey into the holy city at his public announcement as Savior, Lord, and King. At this point, David is is fuming, obviously fuming over the fact that he and his men have been faithfully protecting all of Nabal's livestock, and now Nabal returned David's good for evil. Notice verse 21. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have kept all that this fellow hath in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that pertaineth unto him, and hath requited me evil for good. He understands that this was a great insult. But this was more than just an offense against David. David saw this as an offense against God, against God's anointed. David was God's anointed. And Nabal is refusing to minister to God's anointed. So, and more also, verse 22, do God unto the enemies of David, if I leave all that pertain to him by the morning. I'm not going to leave anyone left. But notice the way he couches the phrase. So and more also do God unto the enemies of David, if I leave of all that pertain to him by the morning light, any that pisseth against the wall. That's an odd saying. And yet it is used in scripture several times. In fact, to our modern ears, it is a vulgar saying. In fact, it is meant to be a vulgarity. To show the depth of what David is intending. The Reverend Long explains it this way. He says, In the case of Nabal, David is not so restrained as he was with Saul. And he swears an oath of self-malediction if by morning... 
I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. The term one male rendered in Hebrew literally means one who urinates against a wall, likely a standard formula for males. The suggestion that the expression is especially crude, wall pisser, or the like, while not unlikely for David in his current state, is undercut by the fact that the formula is used several times by Yahweh himself, as well as at least once by the biblical narrator in 1 Kings 16.11. So why the phrase? Why such a vulgar phrase? You can't soften it, no matter what translation you use. Does it have a symbolic meaning? Does it have a scriptural meaning? Does it just mean someone who's a male? I'm just going to kill the males. Well, as with everything in the Bible, everything in Scripture, I believe this too has a spiritual significance. Now the wall, remember what David was saying he was. He was a wall to the servants. He protected them. The term wall is used in Scripture to designate the commandments and the ordinances of God in Ephesians 2, especially in Ephesians 2. For someone to urinate against the wall seems to imply that they are disdaining the law of God by relieving themselves upon it, by desecrating it. It is the ultimate disrespect for the law of God and it signifies an unholy rebellion against His purity to, to piss against the wall. It's a very dramatic statement, a very vulgar intent. David is saying that he's going to punish all those that disdain the law of God in such a disgusting and blasphemous fashion. And so generally speaking, all those that seek to violate the commandments of God in rebellion against him in such a vulgar fashion by, quote-unquote, pissing against it, David says, deserve to die. Knowing what Nabal did and what David's response will be, Abigail hurries to intercept the king's wrath. Now consider the particulars of her plea. She approaches David with an offering and prostrates. The immediate response of Abigail is she prostrates herself before him. She lights off the ash. She comes off the donkey. She falls on her face before David. She bows herself to the ground. At his feet she falls. And she addresses him as my Lord. In effect, she acts as mediator between herself and and her husband and all of the servants by asking David to charge her with Nabal's evil. Upon me, my Lord, upon me let this iniquity be. Reminds me of Abraham praying for those who were about to perish in Sodom and Gomorrah, an intercessor. It reminds me also of Moses when he says, let me be accursed for my brethren. So she says that she wants the iniquity to be placed upon her. Then she asks permission to speak to David. And let thine handmaid, notice she's calling herself David's handmaiden, I pray thee speak in thine audience and hear the words of thine handmaid. She's going to bring a plea. And then she continues and she asks David to pay no attention to her wicked husband and basically explains he's a jerk, he's a man of folly. She then appeals to David's understanding of God's providence by pointing out that she has intervened. This is the working of God. God moved Abigail, she is saying, to intervene 
so that David would not notice her concern, so that David would not be guilty of shedding innocent blood. Verse 26, Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, seeing the Lord hath withholden thee from coming to shed blood, because I'm here to stop you, and from avenging thyself with thine own hand. Now, this might seem to expose a flaw in David's character. He was ready with wrath. He was going to destroy the entire house of Nabal. David's initial response was to act wrathfully and to take revenge upon Nabal, which included every one of his servants. David viewed Nabal's rejection of his request as a declaration of war by everyone when it was only Nabal that had provoked David. Interpreting it that way, David immediately applied the law of Moses, but included in his wrath, he included everyone who was innocent. And it seemed at this point that David did not consider a merciful response to Nabal's servants because he was blinded by Nabal's evil response. Abigail identifies David's intentions as the shedding of blood, which it was something that would mar David's own character. If David did all that he had declared, it would have marred David's character. Note here how God is protecting David from himself. Abigail was David's counselor, giving him a moment of pause to reconsider. Abigail was giving David counseling as to reconsider, giving him a moment of pause to reconsider what the will of the Lord was. She did not want him to strike out in wrath. And so instead of acting wrathfully without limits, Abigail helps David recognize that sometimes in wrath you need to remember mercy. Abigail agrees that Nabal is evil and needs to be dealt with, but she doesn't want David to go beyond what is necessary by killing others as collateral. This is what God does. When Adam sinned, he could have wiped out the entire human race in wrath, but he brings to us a mediator, Jesus Christ. She says this to David, Now let thine enemies, and they that seek evil to my Lord, be as Nabal, but do not kill the young men who are Nabal's servants. And now this blessing, which thine handmaiden had brought unto my Lord, notice it was the blessing of those things that she had on the donkey, let it even be given unto the young men that follow my Lord. This condemnation on Nabal is most prophetic. Abigail is saying to David that every one of David's enemies ought to eventually befall the same fate as Nabal. Asking for mercy and forgiveness, however, Abigail goes further in her pronouncement because she knows that God is going to set up David's kingdom, his dynasty, to glorify himself. How did she know this? Well, she knew who David was. Now, Nabal knew who David was. And this is why she says, For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord fighteth the battles of the Lord, and evil had not been found in thee all these days. You are guiltless. Don't do this thing. Secondly, she then tells David that even though there will be many enemies to contend with, God will keep him safe and God will deal with his enemies. She says this, she says this in verse 29. Yet a man is risen to pursue thee and seek, and to seek thy soul, but the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God. She promises that all of David's enemies will be dealt with in the same way as David destroyed Goliath. Now notice she points back to that fateful day. And the souls of thine enemies, them shall he sling out, God will sling out, as out of the middle of a sling. 
pointing back to that victorious battle between David and Goliath. Abigail then, in an incredible prophecy, tells David that he will be the ruler over the entire 12 tribes of Israel. That will be in the future, but that will happen eventually. And it shall come to pass, verse 30, when the Lord shall have done to my Lord according to all the good that he hath spoken concerning thee, and shall have appointed thee ruler over Israel. Not just Judah, but the whole of Israel. Finally, Abigail asks for mercy from the future king. And as a reward for her intervention, she asks for mercy and receives it. That this shall be no grief unto thee, nor offense of heart unto my Lord, either that thou hast shed blood causeless, or that my Lord hath avenged himself. But when the Lord shall have dealt well with my Lord, then remember thine handmaid. Remember me. The gospel is here in such an incredible way. We see that when Adam fell, he effectually declared war upon God, his provider. Like David securing Nabal's wealth, God secured Adam's wealth while in the Garden of Eden. And all God wanted from Adam was to till the ground, to worship God, to obey his commandments, and to give back to him what he had given Adam, a fruitful field. But when Adam rebelled, God had to destroy him. But if God had done so, even as David was ready to destroy all of Nabal's people, there would be none left on the face of the earth. But God chose to intervene and send forth a mediator so as not to kill everyone. And here again, we have a glorious historical parable of the gospel of mediation, prayer, and mercy, as well as wrath in the account of Nabal and Abigail. Beloved, next we shall return to Nabal and Abigail to witness then the Lord's vengeance upon the evil man. This we shall do next time, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.